This is Tom Lee, Editor-in-Chief for NEJM Catalyst, and I'm talking today with one of the most thoughtful, grounded in reality physician leaders I know, Dan Varga, uh, who is the Chief Physician Executive of Hackensack Meridian Health System. We're talking today about the looming shortage of physicians. Dan was part of a conversation that I was in recently, uh, and he was telling me about how he and his colleagues are having major concern about how there just aren't going to be enough doctors to meet the needs of our patients unless we change the way we deliver care. And that even if we're successful in reducing burnout and holding on to people, we have a major problem. So I asked him to come join us today and talk about why he's worrying about it for his organization and what kind of things we might be able to do. So Dan, uh, why are you so worried about this problem? Tell us about it. Well, you know, Tom, as you and I've talked before, there's, you know, there's lots of data out there uh, talking about physician shortages, and, and you see the estimates, they can be anywhere between 50,000, 150,000 doctors by the mid-2030s, you know, and we all know it's a combination of, you know, an aging population, physician burnout, and a whole host of other things. So I'm the chief physician executive and the president of the physician services division at Hackensack Meridian Health, which is uh a, a multi-hospital integrated delivery system in New Jersey. We go all the way from you know, northern New Jersey down to just short of Atlantic City. So we cover the cover the whole state. And I would tell you, you know, my friend, that as, as opposed to really thinking about physician headcount, um, and you and I talked about this a, a bit a, a few months ago, what I'm really concerned about is the replacement of current productivity. And, you know, as I look at um, the, the employed doctors that we have at Hackensack Meridian, as I look at our private practice doctors in certain specialties, I'm looking at, you know, doctors who produce 15,000, 20,000 worked RVUs a year and have been doing it for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And as we recruit into our practices, and, and there, there's no, nothing pejorative here, this is just, just, just the facts of life, what we find is that the the number of doctors that we would need to recruit to replace a doctor who produces at that level is somewhere around you know a couple FTEs worth, and not only that the the need because of work hour restrictions and other sorts of things to make sure that these folks can actually um, uh, perform at the level that uh, that that we need them to, and it, when you're purely looking at productivity replacement. It's we need to get one person in, let them ramp up with one of the senior physicians, then bring the next person in who can then ramp up. And now we maybe can replace that one highly productive doctor. So that's really where we're finding our biggest challenge, Tom, is this concept of productivity replacement, not necessarily body count. And uh, it's, it's a big issue whether we're talking about primary care and what sort of uh, patient access model we can create in an ambulatory world or if we're talking about the delivery of critical hospital-based services like orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery, cardiovascular surgery, interventional cardiology, et cetera. So you and I both know that the meaning of life and the meaning of healthcare is not producing RVUs, but we do have to produce RVUs. And so I take it that the reason it's taking like one and a half or two physicians 
to replace every physician who retires is that the generation of physicians coming along actually want something more like a real life. They want some work-life balance. Is that the issue? You know, I think it's a piece of it. I mean, if you just think about the, you and I are probably um, one of the most unique generations of physicians. The the folks that that came before us were 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 of a generation where you know to a large extent was what was our what was the uh, economic model there? It was private practice or academic practice. Uh, reimbursement was cost plus or usual, customary and reasonable reimbursement. And then our our generation came along, and we were the 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 baby boomers of the managed care era, and the. The response to that was to for folks who were you know very well trained and knew what they were doing and everything else to 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 not practice internal medicine or cardiology the way they the way their uh, mentors practiced it, but to really be highly highly productive it was the way to make a living. And then you know 2011 we introduced resident work hours. The the demographics of the medical school class changed dramatically, and I think rightfully so. Folks say, no, I'm I'm not interested in the amount of, of that that type of work uh, work life balance. I want something that's a bit more of a mirror image of what that generation is doing, and it's it's great. I think it's a better doctor. I think it's you've done so so much great work on uh, resiliency and grit and burnout, and we have colleagues who've looked at that as well. But at the end of the day, you go, that's great, and I'm glad we have that. Uh, that kind of phenotype of physician now. The problem is, is that the ones that they're replacing are two X of them. And, you know, we, we just, we were going to have to figure how to redesign the care model in a way that allows those doctors to be the good doctors that they are, but at the same time, provide the same access to care that we're providing today, if not more. And I guess this problem, exacerbated by just the incredible progress that's occurred in medicine. Uh, every patient needs more RVUs to get state-of-the-science care because you need so many more people to give really excellent care. Like just starting a patient on diabetes used to be a one-person production. Now it's a team involved. It absolutely is, Tom. And again, I think we, you and I have talked about, is this just a primary care issue? Is it, uh, is it broader than that? I, we find it right now to be a very broad-based uh, concern. The primary care access model, in fact, I would actually argue one of the things that's changed the most uh, specifically for our organization in the last five years, and I think this is borne out by some of my uh, colleague physician executives across the country, is the we've struggled for some time to try to fix the model of care in primary care. And I think we've actually done a pretty good job building team-based approaches to care, adding virtual care, getting uh, advanced practice clinicians, practicing at top of competency and, and a whole host of things. But now I think folks are really seeing a shortage of the ability to provide critical hospital-based care and acute-based care services. And when you're all of a sudden sitting there going, I don't have GI doctors to cover a GI bleed in the hospital at night. How do I fix that? Uh, it becomes a whole new it becomes a whole new problem. 
Well, you are the chief physician executive at Hackensack Meridian Health System. How are you going to fix that problem? Uh, tell me what you're thinking and what you're doing to address these issues short term, medium term, longer term. Let's talk with let's talk short term first. Sure. I mean, so I think the one of the first things that uh, that a large health system like us, like Hackensack Meridian can do is we can look to regionalize and rationalize, right? We can, we can define market areas that where we can say, you know, if we can provide, you know, a high-end service at one of our larger hub hospitals, uh, we, can, we can actually meet the needs of our three or four smaller hospitals that are in that same regional market. And that means we only have to actually create the workforce, the, the, the technology, the the, uh, the non-physician skill sets uh, in one time at one place, and then we just scale to be able to provide there. And then just not in some situations really kind of determine the specifications we'll have for a specific specialty, let's just say neurosurgery. Uh, and even more specifically, use the example of stroke. They say we'll have a comprehensive stroke center in every region. And the practice we build at that comprehensive stroke center will provide the stroke physician workforce for the three smaller uh, hospitals across that region so that we can provide a really strong standard of care, whether it's a community hospital or a regional hub, and not have to duplicate the workforce everywhere. So regionalize, rationalize, I think, is one, one approach. The other is really, again, something we just mentioned, and that is using advanced practice clinicians to really drive a true top of competency model. If you're looking at a surgical specialty and you want to keep the same sort of access to care for surgical procedures that you have today with folks who are not producing at the level that those doctors historically did, then we look at things like physician, uh, physician assistants, advanced practice nurses who are doing consults on the floor in neurosurgery and following patients up in neuro ICUs while the neurosurgeons are in the operating room. Uh, doing what only they can do. It's a it's a real top of competency model, and I think over the, you know the the longer term uh, question really I think becomes divergent when we talk about hospital based care and then ambulatory care because I think the tools available to us on the ambulatory side and here I'm really thinking about the virtual care models that 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 are emerging gives you a whole other set of um, capabilities that you can deploy to try to make sure your access models meet in the community need. So short-term taking advantage of your size and the fact that you can do things across region, medium-term, you are talking about using uh, APPs to really try to help everyone practice the top of the license. And longer-term, you're talking about something really approaching care redesign. Do I have that right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's spot on. Again, one of the things that we worry about short, intermediate, and long-term is there's, while we've seen a lot of care transition to from inpatient to outpatient, from outpatient to virtual, you and I both know that uh, whatever emerges with all of the new technology that's out there, we're still going to have hospitals with really, really sick people in them. And the uh, I think that's where... Actually, part of the genesis of this conversation uh, was really what has happened in the last year to make the basic provision of really critical hospital-based services 
become something that is truly subject to scarcity now. Well, you made one really interesting comment a little while back about how we, to a certain extent, we figured out some stuff about generalists in primary care, but generalists in specialty care is uh, you know, a problem that is not so well thought out. Um, I, you and I have talked a little bit about that challenge of the generalist specialist, like sending the patient to neurology to someone when who can assess the patient when you know something's going on, but you're not quite sure what, and then everyone in the world is subspecialized. Same kind of dynamic occurring in other specialty areas. How how do you picture us addressing that issue as these generalist specialists retire? You know, they're they're in their seventies now. No, it's it's a great point. I mean, you know, the uh, I'm a general internist who had a really busy academic practice before I moved into a, a more of a full time administrative role. I don't think my that species exists much anymore because most of our internal medicine residents go into medical subspecialties, same thing on, for example, on the neurology side, et cetera. I do think there is, if we're talking about an ambulatory access model, I think there are ways for us to fill some of the void that uh, that the generalist specialist has historically provided. I mean, we right now, for example, in our neurology practices could add as many epileptologists, uh, movement disorder doctors, uh, et cetera, MS specialists in the uh, outpatient setting as we could get and still not have an access model because in large part, those are complex patients that take a lot of time to see and there's only so much access one of those doctors can create. That's where the historically the general neurologist has filled that need. I think we're going to struggle, to be quite honest, to, to re-encourage even with economic incentives and other things, the recreation of the generalist specialist. So I think we are going to need to look at the building of uh, primary care doctors who can actually be, if you will, somewhat subspecialized in that spot. I mean, I'll give you an example of where that's where I think that's worked well. If you look at the burden of call, for example, in orthopedic surgery, lots of things that come to the EDs, broken legs, sprained ankles, sprained knees, et cetera. A huge issue for orthopedic surgeons is all of those people need follow-up. Orthopedic surgery offices work to sift through things that need simple non-surgical intervention and then also to identify surgeries, which is the lifeblood of an orthopedic practice. We have, and other health systems and hospitals across the country have created ortho-ED follow-ups with uh, family medicine doctors and APPs who are trained in sports medicine, et cetera, who can see all of those follow-ups, do whatever diagnostic workup needs to be done post-ED visit, and then only send them to the orthopedic uh, surgeon when they need that service. I think you see the same sort of thing in spine surgery with uh, the integration in the spine surgery programs, and you've seen this, I'm sure, of physiatrists who can be the initial evaluators of, of folks uh, with, with chronic low back pain or whatever it happens to be, then put them through a diagnostic and treatment uh, regimen that may or may not end up needing to see a spine surgeon somewhere down the road. But if it does, it's likely to be to see a spine surgeon about spine surgery. So I think we've shown we can build those models, and I think we're going to have to do more and more of those. 
Uh, well, that is a really interesting and important point. We have figured out that primary care physicians should be the first place that patients should go for complaints in general. But then once it's in a general specialty area, thinking about new first contact points after primary care uh, that include APPs or or generalists who have been who have deep experience in a specialty area, uh, that kind of new model will almost surely be the kind of thing we have to be open to testing. I think we absolutely have, will have to, Tom, for sure. I have always found over the years that you are on the cutting edge of of thinking about what new models we have to be ready to try, and then you're ready to try them. Uh, so I am uh, grateful for your time today, and I am confident that we'll be checking in with you in the years ahead to see how these uh, how these new models evolve. Thank you so very much. Hey Tom, thanks for the for the invitation, and thanks for the t chance to chat. You know, it's always great when when I get to hang out with you for a little while. So take care and be well.